0: As we turn now to the preaching of God's word, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would overrule and overwhelm my mouth and my words, our ears, and our hearing, so that what is said and what is heard is in accordance to the word of God, for the good of God's people, and for the glory of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. You may may recognize these words depending on your age. Steve Austin, astronaut, a man barely alive. Gentlemen, we can rebuild him. We have the technology, we have the capability to build the world's first bionic man. Steve Austin will be that man better than he was before. Better, stronger, faster. I say that to myself every morning as I go to the gym. Better, faster, stronger. Did anybody recognize those words, or is it just me? Yes, thank you. Yes, and the sound effects. The sound effects, of course. Thank you, Jeff. Yes. See, the sound sound effects. That's what comes to our mind, is the sound effects. Fasting. Fantastic. Six million dollar man. This whole idea that a man whose body was broken could be put back together through technology and make him better than he was. Better, stronger faster, the idea that technology could save him, give him a future, a hope for a better tomorrow, and give him give him power in this life. Sounds like science fiction, right? Sounds like an amazing television show. Sounds like an even better book because books are better than TV. Kids, listen to me. Right? Am I right? It sounds fantastic. And it sounds far-fetched. Sounds like something that would never happen. Sounds like something that we would never logically or actively or realistically think about happening, right? Wrong! (laughs) There is today in this world a class of philosophies that are taken together and referred to as transhumanism. And while it may sound like science fiction to many of us, transhumanism is generally the belief that human life as it currently exists is broken, flawed, and unfinished. A leading voice of this movement, is, his name is Max Tegmark. He is actually an MIT professor. He pointedly writes in a book that he has called Life 3.0, he pointedly writes that humanity needs an upgrade. Transhumanists, in general, believe that the next step in human evolution will be made through the application of technology to the human organism. And while what Tegmark calls life 3.0 would bring humanity closer to its full potentiality, (coughs) technology when applied to the human being would save a human and save humanity from its deepest problems. It would give humanity a hope for a better tomorrow, a hope for a future. And it will give humanity power to live differently in the present. Don't believe me? Think about the underlying philosophy to Captain America. Next weekend, we're gonna be billions of dollars spent to go see a movie about the Avengers. Think about in your mind how many of the Avengers, how many of the superheroes are augmented by technology in one way or the other. The central character himself, Captain America, is the recipient of the Super Soldier Serum from World War II. Say that five times fast. Iron Man, a secondary character, but nonetheless at the center of the group, he saved himself physically because he had shrapnel on its way to his heart, and he created a giant magnet. He planted it right in his chest, and now he dons a suit of armor. It's closer than we think it is. But before anything else, let's recognize something about transhumanism, something that it shares with every single philosophy, every single worldview, and every single religion. Let's recognize something about transhumanism. There is within it, just like within every single philosophy and every single religion, there is within it a deep recognition that humans are not the way humans are supposed to be. And with that recognition, there is a deep longing for humans to be better. And we, as Christians, can stand along our transhumanist brothers and sisters and say, you're absolutely right. There is more to being truly human than we currently experience. The reality of human life is that we aren't what we were made to be. And like a computer that's still running Windows 95 in the year 2019, we are in desperate need of an upgrade. The problem with movements like transhumanism is that they are looking for salvation. They're looking for saving. They're looking for hope, a hope for a better tomorrow. They're looking for power to live differently in the present within the very thing they proclaim to be flawed, humanity itself. And in this, transhumanism is simply a logical step in the Enlightenment, in Enlightenment thinking. Birth in the 17th and 18th centuries, this uh, philosophical movement, perhaps we could call it the Enlightenment centered upon the philosophy that through the proper application of science, reason, and technology, humanity could fix itself. The early and middle ages of enlightenment thinking, what we uh, might call modernity, died in the trenches of World War II and in the ovens of Auschwitz. Now in what we might call post-modernity or even post-post-modernity, enlightenment thinking that man can fix himself persists down the path of self-help. It's just now we have technology that was once thought to be within the realm of science fiction well within our grasp. This desire to be better, this desire to be more truly human, this desire to be saved, this desire to have a hope, this desire to have power, it's an absolutely natural desire. But left to our natural selves, we we tend to look in all sorts of places, usually within. What history tells us, what history books tell us, what scriptures tell us, that humans simply can't upgrade the self in the lasting and meaningful way that is needed. Yes, we can replace body parts, and praise God that we can do that. We can replace bits and pieces, and praise God that we can do that. We can try Tony Robbins seminars. We can go to deep breathing techniques. We have therapies. We can even try hypnosis. And while we may find some relief in these things, we fundamentally cannot deal with the deepest problem of humanity through them. We cannot solve the problem of sin. We cannot find true forgiveness. We cannot, in our own, truly overcome death. And we cannot give ourselves a true hope for tomorrow. And we cannot really affect lasting change in our own power. We simply aren't big enough to save ourselves. We simply are not strong enough to provide a hope For ourselves. We simply do not have the capacity to empower ourselves. While philosophies and world religions seek to answer the questions of where can I find salvation, how can I have hope, and what can make me better, Christianity has always offered a solution. The scriptures have always offered a solution to our deepest and most profound human problems. That solution is found externally to humanity. It comes, this solution comes to the death and resurrection of one man, is applied to the fullness of our beings, not through a patch or robotic appendages, but through our participation in his death and resurrection in an act of God that comes upon us by grace through faith. Most simply put, we do need an upgrade. We need the upgrade Jesus, the prototype, is and has to offer. Jesus is the prototype of new humanity. Jesus is the one who saves. Jesus is the one who gives hope for a future. Jesus is the one who gives us power in the present to overcome our sinful frailties. And when I call Jesus the prototype, I'm reflecting upon a 2,000-year-old tradition. St. Paul, writing in his letter to the Colossians, calls Jesus the firstborn of all creation. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything, he might be preeminent. The crucified and risen Jesus is the prototype of what humanity ought to be. He is the new way to be human. Jesus is the upgrade that brings salvation, that brings hope, that brings power. This morning, we talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is Jesus' actions were the new way to be human. God's true way to be human is made present. Through his death on Good Friday and through his resurrection on Easter Sunday, Jesus, the prototype, gives us what we most desperately need. He makes available to all who would believe what we most desperately need, what we're all looking for, salvation, hope and power. He is the external Savior who saves those who believe from the penalty of sin. He is the external Savior who will save those who believe from the presence of sin and death. He is the external Savior who is saving those who believe from the very power of sin now in the present. In his first letter to the Corinthians, St. Paul uh, discusses the resurrection of Jesus in chapter 19. And here he states the resurrection of Jesus is for the salvation of many and for the hope of a future. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting at verse 17, we read this. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only... We are of all people most to be pitied. St. Paul puts it very clearly and bluntly. If there is no resurrection of Jesus, then those Corinthians in the first century and we living in 2019, we are still in our sins. Without the resurrection of Jesus, St. Paul tells us there is no salvation. There's no forgiveness of sins. Jesus, without the resurrection, would have just been another crucified criminal. And our faith would be placed in one who accomplished absolutely nothing upon the cross. Paul tells us without the resurrection, there is no meritorious sacrifice. There, is, there would be no salvation and no hope. The dead would just be dead. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20, Paul has a very big butt. Pun intended. But in fact... Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. St. Paul writes that Jesus is alive, and because he is alive, all of those previous negations are null and void. Jesus is alive, and because he is alive, salvation is available, and so is hope. The resurrection of Jesus proves that his sacrifice upon the cross, that his death was actually meritorious. That it accomplished something, that God is well pleased with him. And because of the resurrection of Jesus, believers then can know that they are forgiven of their sins, that Christ has paid the penalty, that he has done away with the penalty for sin. And because of the resurrection of Jesus, believers in him can have hope can have a confident expectation of a better tomorrow, a better future, of a life beyond death, because death itself has been killed. Christ's resurrection ensures salvation in the present and hope for the future, even in the face of death. 16th century poet and priest John Donne began one of his holy sonnets with this stanza. Death, be not proud, Though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. And why, in Dunn's estimation, should death not be proud? His sonnet concludes One short sleep past, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. Death itself will die because of the resurrection of Jesus. Death itself will die in the resurrection of the believers of Jesus as he returns. Death itself has been neutered and rendered weak. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, St. Paul puts it this way, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death itself is swallowed up in victory. Why do we make a big deal about the resurrection of Jesus? Because he is the prototype. And without his resurrection, there is no salvation. There is no saving. And there is no hope. There is no hope for tomorrow. There is no hope for life after life after death. All who believe in Jesus are brought into true and lasting life. And they are given a true and lasting hope for the future. And then there is power given in Jesus to live in the present. And we see this power of, for a new life discussed in Romans chapter 6, which we heard read this morning. In Romans chapter 6, at verse 4, we read, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And later on in this passage, Paul goes on to discuss the life of one who believes in Jesus being lived in union with Christ, the prototype. We talk about Jesus' death being meritorious. That means, as Paul has said, we die with him when we believe. We talk about his resurrection being proof of the merit and his resurrection being meritorious. Paul says we are raised to new life with him. By grace through faith, the believer in Jesus is put to death and brought to life by the act and power of God. The old is killed, executed with Jesus, and the new is brought to life in the resurrection of Jesus. That is the upgrade, to use that language, that is then applied to the believer. Life is changed. Now we not only know what God wants for us to do, but now we are able, because of Jesus and the newness of life he gives to us, we are able to actually live into it. Not because we're great, but because Jesus is. Not because we've conquered, but because Jesus has. Starting at verse 9 of Romans chapter 6, Paul speaks very specifically about the power and the new life over sin. He says this, we know that Christ being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Folks, Jesus' resurrection means a victory over sin and death. Jesus' resurrection means that while the battle, perhaps, is ongoing, and it is, the victory is secure because He has won it. Paul then, based upon what Jesus has accomplished, calls men and women who believe in Him to intentionally live in the power of Christ, to intentionally live in the gift and the presence of the Holy Spirit, to intentionally be done with sin and to live for Him. Philosophies and world religions and transhumanism, absolutely right. Humanity needs an upgrade. We need saving. We need a hope for future, a future. We need power for the present. We do need an upgrade the solution is found not within ourselves, not in the power of positive thinking. The solution is not found within ourselves, as if we can declare some sort of new reality upon ourselves. The solution is found externally in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the prototype. Only in Him do we find forgiveness of Him sins, what we call salvation. Only in Him do we have hope, a confident expectation of life, and only in Him do we find strength, and ability to be different, to be better, to live a new life in power and victory over sin and death. All because of the resurrection. But is it even believable, this thing we call the resurrection? Can we truly believe that 2,000 years ago a man died, got put into a tomb, and on the third day he somehow walked out? Can we really believe that? In our modern historical context, as in Jesus' own historical context, His resurrection is now, as it was then, a hard pill for many to swallow. And what are we to do? It doesn't change the fact that humanity is confronted with a need for salvation, hope, and power In fact, I think what we are to do as believers in Jesus, we are called to proclaim the truth of the resurrection of Jesus and live as the prototype lived in the new life he has given. We are called objectively to speak about Jesus' resurrection and then subjectively to show those around us what salvation is lived out like, what hope looks like, and what power over sin is these two aspects, the uh, objective proclamation and the subjective living, that is what we can call a holistic witness that gives validity to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there is good reason to believe that the resurrection occurred, that Jesus was raised from the dead. If we look at Luke chapter 24 this morning, we can pick up some hints and some good reasons why we would believe in the resurrection. And it may sound odd, but Luke's brutal honesty points to the validity of the event. If a group of people were going to create an event that was itself unbelievable, they would not have selected the unlikely first witnesses that Luke does, and they would not have presented the unflattering portrayal of the apostles that Luke does. In so many ways, in the ancient world, the idea of the resurrection was foolishness to human ears. It is now, and it was then. Author and former Bishop N.T. Wright notes that while ancient philosophies and religions had a concept of the afterlife, there really was not a belief in the physical resurrection of a single individual. Wright comments, death was all-powerful. One could neither escape it in the first place nor break its power once it had come. Everyone knew there was, in fact, no answer to death. The resurrection itself was unbelievable. If in the ancient world a group of people was going to create, fictionalize an event that would have been unbelievable in its very nature, something like the resurrection in the ancient world, they would not have selected women as its first witnesses and they would have portrayed the secondary witnesses, uh, they would not have portrayed secondary witnesses in this unflattering light. In the gospel accounts of Jesus' resurrection in Matthew chapter 28, Mark chapter 16, Luke chapter 24, and John 20, the first witnesses to this incredible event, the first witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus, were women. This is amazing because in that ancient world, women were not accepted as credible witnesses. Their testimony was not considered valid. Then when the 12, 11 disciples hear the women and their report of the re- empty tomb... The response was not belief. It was not shock. It was not awe. It was an easy dismissal of the announcement as idle talk, literally as the gibberish that comes out of the mouth of someone suffering from great sickness or pain. These 11 disciples or apostles were the closest followers of Jesus. They became the first missionaries for the gospel, and here they are portrayed in the unflattering light of skepticism and disbelief. If some group of people were going to make up an event that was itself unbelievable, they would have picked better witnesses and founding fathers. And our next bit of evidence from Luke chapter 24 comes from Jesus Himself. When the women did not find the corpse of Jesus, Luke tells us that two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. It's code words for angelic witnesses, for angels. And these two angels rebuked and reminded the women. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you when he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? The angels remind the women that Jesus himself foretold the events. In Luke's Gospel at 9.22 and again in 18.32 and 33, Jesus speaks in very clear language. I will be arrested Betrayed, arrested, beaten, and crucified. I will be buried, and then on the third day, I will rise. What do we do with that? We have limited options here, folks. Either Jesus himself was delusional about his resurrection, or Jesus was intentionally misleading people with something they wouldn't believe anyway, or he told the truth. The first two options leave us with a corpse on our hands. The third leaves the tomb empty in fulfillment of his word. There's good evidence, good reason why from Luke itself, from Luke himself we would trust in the resurrection. And time limits us from exploring further evidence for the validity of the resurrection. But let's simply say there's good reason to believe that Jesus the prototype, the one who can give us salvation and hope and power is alive. These lines of evidence may serve to strengthen our faith, but what about the world that still considers the resurrection of Jesus to be too foolish to believe? It's true. There is more manuscript evidence. There are more written documents from the ancient world that testify to the existence of Jesus than there is Julius Caesar. But in our current cultural mood, such evidence provides little in the way of persuasion and often results in a shrug of the shoulders, or perhaps a roll of the eyes. It's true. There are non-Christian, contemporary to Jesus, non-Christian documents and testimony from that era that testify to his existence, that testify to his crucifixion and his death and to the claims of resurrection. But in our current cultural mood, in a world of images and special effects, documents and words have little effect. What are we to do then in the face of all of this? We come back full circle. We come back to the beginning of the sermon. While we have good reason and objective proclamation of the resurrection of Jesus, we're also called to give subjective proof in our own lives. That we have experienced the risen Christ, that we have found salvation from his bloodied hands, risen from the grave. That in his resurrection, we now have a hope for a future. And by the gift of the power of the Holy Spirit, we can now overcome that which breaks us. You see, folks, we must not only speak the words, we must show the world the reality of the very thing that humanity needs, saving hope and power, and that it is found not in ourselves, but in Jesus, who is the prototype. The life lived and the upgrade received from Jesus is itself testimony and witness to the validity of the resurrection. People will read your life before they hear your words. Pastor Lewis Allen says this, no one will listen to a man to learn Christ if they cannot look at him and see Christ. And so yes, we go about the work of evangelism. We go about the work of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with words. It's biblical to do so, but we do so as well with the subjective evidence of a changed life being different because of the resurrection of Christ. With salvation, with hope, And with power. There's good reason found in the evidence of Scripture and history, and there's good reason found in the lives of believers living in the new life of Jesus to believe in the resurrection. Our witness won't save anyone, but the one who saves can and does use the holistic witness of his people to bring others into the presence of the risen Jesus who is the prototype. May we be a church that glorifies God by blessing people with gospel ministries, that they may believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior and join us in building His kingdom. May we be used by the risen Christ to bring people into His presence through our word and through our deeds, that they may receive from Jesus, the risen one, salvation, hope, and power. Jesus, the prototype, is the upgrade we need. I've said this to you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. We pray, gracious God, as we turn to worship you, having heard from your word, that in the midst of our singing, you would come and be present, and that you would indeed be glorified as our audience of one to whom we turn. Come, and be at work among us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and continue our worship.